This, this week we're going to go back to talking for one more Sunday about the emotion of grief or sorrow, which is a kind of abrupt shift. Um, but if you think about it, isn't that what our emotions do sometimes? You know, we're kind of from high to low can, can just be a few minutes sometimes, and they're unpredictable, um, and we, we really never know uh, what they're going to do to us, and, and they really do um, kind of jerk us around from time to time, and I'm not doing that on purpose, but it, it's not inappropriate to kind of go back and forth. And I'm going to begin talking about grief today by walking into another minefield and doing something that I, I almost never do from the pulpit, which is to say something a little bit critical about one of our worship songs. Um, not one of the ones we did today. In fact, I actually had a moment of panic this Thursday because I knew I was going to say something about this song, and I went, wait, what if Don picked it? I'm going to get in trouble. And so I, I, went, I went and I checked Planning Center to make sure I was in the clear, and, and it was fine. But this is a song we don't do very much anymore, we, uh, although we used to sing it all the time. And so I'm bound to make a few of you mad, but the song that I wanted to say something about is the song that is called I'm Trading My Sorrows. I'm trading my sorrows, most of you know it, I'm trading my shame, I'm laying it down for the joy of the Lord. And this song is a great song, it's a very catchy song, love to sing it, um, but it always set off at least a little bit of a yellow light for me in a few places because the song I'm trading my sorrows for the joy of the Lord can be sung almost as a form of self-therapy in which we, we try to shout down our sorrow and our grief and our pain by convincing ourselves that it's not there. And we say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen. Oh, we're done. Thank goodness that's over. It's accomplished, you know. The trade is done with. Almost like I was out on, you know, E-Trade. And I, I called my broker, the Holy Spirit, and I said, can you just sell five shares of sorrow and buy five shares of joy for me? You know? And it's tricky. It's, I'll admit that it's tricky because some of the things in that song, some of the other things we sing about there, like shame, for instance, that can sometimes be dealt with more or less on the spot. The same thing is true of worry, if you think about it. It is possible for you to walk into a worship service here on a Sunday morning and you are absolutely overcome with worry and anxiety, but you can leave delivered from it. And, and, and that is a little more transactional. You might be able to do more of a trade on that one. But sorrow, sorrow is a different animal. You cannot shout down your grief. No matter how many loud hallelujahs you sing in the middle of the storm. And I'm not saying that we need to ditch that song either, but we need to understand that it is possible to use some of these worship songs as kind of an emotional escape, skimming over the problem, talking ourselves into a kind of emotional high, and then by 3.30 Sunday afternoon, the happy God feeling is gone, the sorrow is back, and we're wondering what happened. Now you might say, well, can't I praise God when I'm hurting? Don't people praise God when they're suffering? And I would say, yes, absolutely. But that praise looks different. It looks different than the cheerful, dancing, hands-in-the-air worship time that you might picture sometimes. It's a broken praise. It's a tearful praise. It's a praise of lament. We're going to see today that it is possible to magnify the name of the Lord in the midst of our grief, but it is also 
possible and even popular today for Christians to use a worship time or even a Sunday school class or a small group meeting for what psychologists usually call grief avoidance. Grief avoidance, and that's not a healthy thing. I think we all realize that, let's, let's say, let's say that, that we knew a parent who had just lost a child to death. And we walk up to that parent and say, hey, you know what? You just need to praise the Lord. You know, you just need to, to, to move on. That's not only wrong-headed, it's abusive. And yet sometimes, is it possible that we do that to ourselves? It isn't hard to do the research on grief avoidance and, and discover some of the most common problems that result from, from failing to properly confront our sorrows. It's things like substance abuse, isolation and withdrawal, throwing yourself into your work, avoiding people, places, or activities out of fear that your grief will be triggered, shutting down emotionally. There are people who never come back to church because it reminds them of the departed loved one they used to sit with. There are people who live for years in a house full of old relics they can't bear to let go of. There are parents afraid to let their children out of their sight. There are people who can't fall asleep at night in a lonely house without the help of a bottle of wine. And it's all because they have never properly processed their grief. As I was considering these things, I was, I was confronted by a key sentence in, in the book I told you about about three weeks ago, I think. It's a book that I've read a couple of times called Untangling Emotions. If, if you want to know more about it, you can come ask me and I can give you other information on it. But in the book, the authors say this, grief over any good thing always points us Godward. Grief over any good thing always points us God word. And I was thinking about how that could be possible. And the more I thought about it, the more my mind was drawn repeatedly to this section of the book of Job that I'm about to read to you. So let's pick up Job chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Now there was a day when his, that's Job's, sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. He had ten sons and daughters. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So I want you to notice here what Job's worship service looks like. He shaves his head, he tears his clothes, he falls on the ground, and then he worships. And when Job sings, 
he gives and takes away. It's pretty obvious that he's not wearing some ecstatic, triumphant, carefree smile. But what he's doing is still worship. Worship from his heart, and it blesses God's name. Let me read to you the next sentence from the book I quoted to you. The authors say this, Grief hurts deeply because we are so aware of just how good a gift God has given us in that close friend, in that physical ability to go for a walk, in that chance to live near family, in that souvenir your dad brought back from abroad and gave you when you were 10 years old, whatever it is you've lost. See, Job, Job rightly identifies God here, not just as the one who takes away. We tend to skip ahead to that when we read Job. But first of all, the one who gives. The one who gives every good and perfect gift, James says in the New Testament, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the giver. God is the initiator and the inventor of all the joy that you receive from that person or that thing or that activity that you lost at the time that you were enjoying them. And there are two traps that we avoid when we take our griefs directly to God and recognize Him as the giver of all good things, like Job did. The first trap we avoid is this. It's the trap of giving Satan too much credit. Now we know as readers of Job, because if you read the first half of this chapter, which we didn't do, but we know that Satan was very involved in this great loss that Job had, that Satan actually provoked God into allowing Satan to attack Job in this way. But we also know that Satan had to get God's permission to do it, and if we read back farther, we find out that it was God's bragging on Job to Satan that actually provoked the whole exchange in the first place. So, when, some, when we lose something precious to us, when we go into that grief time and, and we go directly to dealing with the devil, dealing with the pain, dealing with the loss itself, and fixating on that without first dealing with God and considering where God is, that is a recipe for hopelessness. You're barking up the wrong tree. When you are engaging your grief, you cannot get away from God. You cannot get away from God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. You don't need to make excuses for God in your grief. He doesn't need you to do that. God is somewhere in your pain. Now, we don't always know his relationship to it, and it takes courage and faith to consider that God has actually brought us into this dark place, because why would he do that? But we know that he's there, and the first step to confronting grief is always confronting God which helps us, by the way, avoid the other trap, confronting God as the giver. Because the other trap is turning that lost person or that lost thing into an idol. When we explicitly recognize God as the giver of the person, let's say it's a person, God the giver of, of the person that we've lost, we abundantly affirm the value of that person in our grief because that person came to us from God. And yet at the same time, we recognize that the worth and the joy that we see in that person that makes us so happy and fulfilled, we love that person, but we see that the worth and the joy that comes from that actually comes from God who has greater worth and who gives even greater joy. And that's also an incredible testimony to that person's worth, only it doesn't make that person the ultimate worth because that place rightly goes to God. And so while we don't make an idol of that person or that activity, 
or that relationship or that saxophone that was stolen out of the back of our car when we were 21 years old just saying that was grief you know but we still proclaim the value of what we've lost even as we worship only god who is the ultimate giver free from idolatry free from an unhealthy fixation and free from some fear that somehow satan got the best of god this time and that he'll do it again that's a dangerous place to be one of the best expressions of this is in a song that i just love um it's from a, a cd of, of songs that came out about eight or nine years ago you might remember that as a church we went through a kind of an expurgated version of the bible called the story and we went all the way from genesis to revelation in the year 2013 we looked at the whole bible as a whole and uh, there, that's a shortened form of the Bible that many of you read through. And there's actually a, an album, a CD, that goes with that full of songs that are based on the story. And the one that's about Job was written by Nicole Nordeman, the lyrics at least, and it's called Broken Praise. And the lyrics tell the story of Job's wrestling with God. And, and, and Job says this to God, or about God really. Who am I to make demands of the God of Abraham? And who are you that you would choose to answer me with mercy new? For you were the one who filled my cup, and you were the one who let it spill. So blessed be your holy name, if you never fill it up again. If this is where my story ends, just give me one more breath to say hallelujah. And that is how the first half of the CD ends, the Old Testament part right before Jesus comes on the scene. You see, we know that the story doesn't end there. But listen, it has to pause there. When you're in grief, it has to pause there. You can't just run ahead. Our goal in grief is to engage it in a healthy way, a way that moves us Godward and moves us eventually forward. But what does that look like? How, how do we approach this? How do we approach going through grief? And how do we, how do we take on the tricky process of approaching someone else we know who's going through grief and we just don't know what to say because that happens to us a lot as well doesn't it well first of all know this know that there is no formula there is no cookie cutter approach to dealing with grief and that's because we all experience it differently and we all tend to encounter the complex pieces of grief at different times in our experience for instance let's say that there's a family that loses a dad and let's say there are three siblings in the family, and one sibling might be full of joy and relief that her dad is with Jesus after a long illness, while at the same time her sister is expressing her anger that her father would leave them at a time like this. Meanwhile, their brother is just missing dad, and he just longs for one more moment together with his father. Which of these feelings is legitimate? Well, they all are. They all are, and sometimes it's hard for grieving people to get on the same page. So one part of the solution here is to recognize these variations and to give people who are grieving a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness, even when they say things that sound almost hurtful or maybe even a little bit crazy. Because they will. And you will when you go through grief. Now having said that, there is one thing that we all must do in order to successfully engage our grief a step we must take. And it's a step that often seems counterintuitive because it seems like it takes us in the wrong direction. But what we need to do is we need to explore our grief. We need to turn toward it 
and not away from it. We need to examine it, to experience it, to define it, so that we will be able to bring it before God and before others and find healing. You know, it's interesting, we have no problem doing this with our sin, at least theoretically, right? I mean, we know that, we realize when God tells us to confess our sins, he is calling us to confess something specific, not just that we're, we're sinners or we've sinned in some general way. He wants us to deal with what actually happened. And if we deal with it specifically, then that sin can be dealt with. Well, there's something similar when it comes to grief. There is a reason why among all the different kind of psalms in the Bible, and there's 150 of those psalms, but the most common type of psalm by far is the lament, the lament psalm. The songwriter is, is crying out to God in grief or in pain or in need or in confusion or in disappointment or disillusionment, and he doesn't rush through it. He takes his time. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, and that book is not only the Bible's most emotional book, believe it or not, it is also the Bible's most carefully structured book. Jeremiah, who's the author of Lamentations, actually took the time to express his grief in a series of complicated and intricate alphabetic acrostic poems, and that would have taken days and days to construct and to figure out. It's as if Jeremiah is building this exquisitely beautiful, multi-compartmented chest of drawers in which to hold all the different pieces of his grief. Last week we talked about David, and we talked about how David went through, last, two weeks ago I should say, so he went through so many experiences of loss in his life, and, and he, was not, he was not shy about expressing his grief and his sorrow to God and exploring all the contours of his pain. And when you read some of David's psalms, it's almost uncomfortable how honest and how raw he gets with the Lord. Sometimes, as in Psalm 31, David is processing the emotion itself and kind of diving into it. And sometimes he, he connects it to his own sinfulness. Psalm 31, he says this, My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Sounds a little dramatic, but it's how David feels, and he's pouring it out to God, and he realizes he has something to do with it. In 2 Samuel 1, David is grieving the loss of his best friend Jonathan, who dies in battle. And David celebrates their unique relationship. He says, I'm in distress for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been most kind to me. Your love for me was extraordinary, beyond even the love of women. In 2 Samuel 18, it's a much more complicated situation, but David here is grieving the loss of his son Absalom. Absalom was killed while leading a rebellion against David himself. But after David finds out that he's died, David cries out over and over again, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died instead of you. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. He keeps saying, my son, my son. David is trying to process here the loss of the relationship itself and trying to understand it and probably also the guilt that comes from knowing that he had failed as a father. And we need to understand that sometimes our grief comes with a lot of guilt and a lot of regret attached to it as well. Because relationships are messy. And they don't get all suddenly tied and neatened up when somebody dies. And the loss of someone important will often call to mind the ways that we have failed that person or that they have failed us. 
This is another reason that grief must be processed in the presence of God. Because only in Christ, only in Christ can we be truly set free from that regret. Because when we do bring these things to Jesus, he will remind us of our forgiveness in him. Which not only allows us to forgive ourselves for the ways that we may have treated the person that died or that we've lost, but it also allows us to forgive that person for the way that they've hurt us. That forgiveness is only found in Christ. If you go into your grief without that, you won't know what to do. Psalm 55 It's David again, and he's lamenting the betrayal of one of his best friends. One of his best, closest friends has betrayed him. And he remembers, he thinks about the relationship, and he goes back over it, and he rehearses it. And he talks about how special the relationship had become to him. He says, you are my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. What is David doing here? He's coming to terms with what he's lost. Not by running away from it, but by turning toward it and considering it and examining it and naming it. Only then can he turn it over to God for healing. It's a painful process, but we need to go through it. One of the best things that you can do when you lose someone that you love and one of the best things you can do for somebody else when you're trying to comfort them and they've lost somebody that they, that they love is to explore this question, okay? What are you going to miss the most about this person? Now that's a painful question. But it's a great question to explore. And it might seem too painful, but it actually brings healing. When my mom died a few years ago, probably the best thing we ever did as a family was we got together in a big circle in the church fellowship hall in chairs, and and we we just cried our way through the memories. We just told stories for like two hours. And it made us miss her more. But it also brought an amazing level of healing and comfort. Let me give you maybe kind of a more mundane illustration of this, but um, a few months ago, our refrigerator died. And uh, we, we did not mourn the loss. Maybe financially we did, but we didn't have a funeral or anything like that. But, but we had to deal, follow me here, we had to deal with this broken place in our kitchen. We had to remove all the contents and explore the depths of that old refrigerator, which if you've ever done that is a scary thing to do, Right? Then we had to pull the fridge out of its place. We had to clean up all of the stuff that had fallen behind it. And then we had to examine and figure out all the connections that went, that had gone to it. So before that big empty place in our kitchen could be filled, it had to be defined. It had to be measured. and And the broken connections needed to be identified. Now how does that translate to our grief? Well, when you lose, when you lose something precious to you, especially a person, a person you love, you also lose all the connections that bound you to that person. And that's part of your pain and it's part of your grief. For instance, if this was the person that you always watch the Panthers game with, right? Then guess what? You won't be able to watch the Panthers game again until you work through that connection and you name it for what it is and you go ahead and mourn the loss of it. Bring it to Jesus and allow him to redeem the Panthers so, if anybody can do that. Um, so, so you can watch them again. If your favorite song reminds you of, of this person that you've lost, yes, for a while, you are not going to be able to listen to that song. You have to do grief avoidance for a little while probably, right? Let alone sing the song. You won't be able to do that either. 
But if you turn toward your grief, if you celebrate, consciously celebrate what that song meant to both of you and to your relationship together, and ask Jesus not to expunge the song from existence and make it go away, but to redeem it, because that's what Jesus does. He redeems things. He will give the song back to you. It will always be touched by a degree of sadness. But that sadness, rather than destroying you or paralyzing you in your grief, will honor what has been lost, and you'll be able to go on and even maybe sing that song again someday. But now, I'm going to wind up a little bit pretty soon, but but at the risk of of repeating myself and what I said to you two weeks ago, let me remind you what we talked about today. As helpful as it may be, this is not the final word on grief. This is not the final word. Just a few minutes ago, I mentioned the name of Jesus for the first time today. And, And let me reiterate what I said to you a couple of weeks ago, namely that when it comes to grief, Jesus changes the whole game. He really does. And that's because Jesus not only sympathizes with our grief and and shares it in his own heart, and we found that when we saw him kneeling at the tomb and crying at the tomb of Lazarus and other times in his life, Jesus sympathizes with us. He, He goes in there with us, but he has also taken on the greatest grief of all, the loss that accompanies all the other losses and encompasses all the other losses, the one called death, and he has defeated it by dying in our place for our sins and then rising again to proclaim our freedom from them, Jesus has conquered death for all of us who believe in Him. And He's given us the sure and certain hope that one day grief will be made obsolete. We won't need it anymore when He gives us everything back and then some. We sang about that today, didn't we? I will rise. No more sorrow. No more pain. See, Jesus doesn't just give meaning to the empty places in our lives. He fills them. Jesus doesn't just give meaning to our tears. He also will wipe every one of them from our eyes. Jesus doesn't just give meaning to our suffering and our pain and our trouble. He transforms these things into victory. Romans 8, Paul goes through a list of all these horrible things, danger and sword and persecution and nakedness and hardship and famine and all this stuff that brings loss, stuff that causes grief. And then he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, Paul does not say, notice he didn't say not by forgetting all these things. He doesn't say escaping all these things. He doesn't say even in spite of all these things. No, he says in in all of these things that bring grief. We are, and then he uses a really fancy Greek word that could only mean this, super victorious. Jesus does not whitewash the past. He redeems it. Somehow, in a way that, that only God currently understands, even our grief, becomes our glory. We're going to close. We don't do this very often anymore. We're going to close with a song today. And um, some of you may have already guessed which one it was when we read the scripture today. But, but this is a song for you to bless the name of the Lord wherever you're at right now. So maybe in your grief, 
maybe in your celebration, maybe in the middle of, of trouble or confusion, maybe even in memory of someone you've lost. Let's turn Godward and sing one more song as we end our service today.